Everybody's a dreamer And everybody's a star And everybody's in movies It doesn't matter who you are There are stars in every city In every house and on every street And if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard Their names are written in concrete Hi, you're tuning in to the Film Stage Show. This is a little bit different than usual. I, I know you'd probably expect to hear uh, Brian J. Rowan's voice right now, but instead you're stuck with me, uh, Michael Snydell. Um, I am here with uh, my colleague Max O'Connell. Say hi, Max. Hi, Max. <laughs> um, and we're here to talk about our experience with the Chicago International Film Festival, um, which is a film festival that's been around a few a few decades now, and um, usually brings a, a lot of the <laughs> big films that all of us have been hearing about for uh, months. And um, in, in some of the cases, there's some there's some big films here, you know, films from people like uh, Steve McQueen, um, as well as the new Yorgos Lanthimos film, um, amongst uh, many other things that have been playing at festivals uh, throughout this year. And uh, we thought it would be good to do a podcast about um, the festival experience, about some of our thoughts on some of the larger films and things that you surprisingly might be able to see as soon as, you know, a month or two from now, uh, depending where you live. I already introduced Max briefly, but um, Max, can you kind of tell us where you can be found and a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm a Chicago-based writer uh, and and used to uh, write uh, as the film critic and uh, arts, uh, arts reporter for the uh, – Rapid City Journal in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. I now write for a few different places, but uh, most recently it's been for the film stage and for uh, RogerEbert.com. Oh, fantastic. I, and I, I know, Max, this is one of your – sorry, this is your first time um, covering uh, the Chicago International Film Festival. So I, just briefly before we even get into the lineup, I mean, what's your experience been like um, getting to uh, see these films and in general? Well, I've, I've been to a few festivals before, but this is the first one I've covered. So uh, it's a similar uh, thing of just trying to see whatever you can in a given day, trying to pack as much in without packing so much in that you like stop seeing things because after – four or five movies in, in, in a day, like your, your eyes kind of start to, uh, glaze over, so to speak. <laughs> um, I'm sure you, you can, you can, uh, say the same. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, really just been, uh, great trying to at least spend some time on, on lesser known films as well as some of the bigger ones. Yeah, it is. That is the one thing I do have to say about film festivals. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a sprint at the end of the year yeah. to get through as many things as possible, but especially the, you know, more prestige films or, or not necessarily only prestige, but you know, there's a lot of heavy hitters at the, at the end of the year. I mean, like, 
even this year, you know, on this Christmas, we have uh, new films from uh, Clint Eastwood. We have new films from, um, oh boy, uh, sorry, there's Vice from the uh, McKay, Adam McKay, as well as a, a number of other films. It was, it was kind of crazy being in a, a theater the other day and, and seeing about five trailers in a row that are all coming out on Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Despite the the terror I felt about that, um, it it really is really exciting to uh, get to see the kind of like a very diverse lineup. I I, I mean, um, speaking particularly of this stiff lineup, I, I mean, do you have any initial thoughts? Like, or, or even what were you most excited about when you uh, saw the uh, release for the lineup, for instance? Well, the the thing I was most uh, excited for uh, was a lot of the, the the foreign releases that were going to come out maybe a little later next year rather than say um, Widows is coming out in a month so I feel no real need, real need to to see it right now uh, to just say one example whereas say the new uh, Asayas film or the new Christian Petzold film. I think uh, there's going to be a little bit of a delay, and, and to be able to see them um, presented so well is, is uh, I, I guess, uh, it, well, it's a treat. Yeah, no, that absolutely. I, I think that there is there is certainly a little bit of that um, the, the strangeness of the exclusivity of you know seeing like even for you know the most explicit example that one of the opening films for the Chicago International Film Festival was uh, Beautiful Boy, which is a uh, uh, film starring uh, Steve Carell and uh, Timothy Chalamet. You know, it's kind of the the toast of the industry at the moment. And uh, that's coming into regular theaters this week. But so you only have, you know, a, a week uh, you know, you're seeing the film a week early and, and the director is in attendance and, it, you know, it is a certain a gala, uh, you know, uh, quality to those screenings and things like that. But it is still nonetheless a, a little bit strange and understand and yet at the same time understandable how some of these festivals work. But yeah, I, as you're saying, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, the the Pets old film or, um, you know, even the, uh, new, uh, Gia, uh, Zanke. And I, I just want to say this right now. I'm sorry for any butchering of pronunciations of names. Um, as if it's, yeah, if your, your name's even a little bit difficult, I'm really sorry, but, uh, that takes nothing away from my affection for the films that you're in. Um, so I guess, I guess the best place to start is um, there's a, there's a few different films that we kind of uh, coordinated that we are both going to watch. Those are the the new Gia, which I Gia Zenki, which I've already spoken about, which is The Ashes Purest White, which is uh, I believe the follow up to. A touch of sin. Uh, mountains you know made depart. Mountains made oh, depart. Oh shoot! Between, yeah. I I saw mountains made depart and <laughs> made that mistake. That's wonderful. Um and sorry and the uh, Aseas the new Olivier Aseas which comes after last year's uh, personal shopper called nonfiction and thirdly uh, 
or I shouldn't say, uh, thirdly, uh, Transit, which is the new Petzold. And uh, the last one, which is, interestingly enough, probably the closest we're going to get to Oscar conversation on this podcast. And that is the film uh, Rafiki, which uh, many people have talked about as the possible uh, foreign language entry for Kenya. And um, for a little bit of political context, it was it was uh, it is a film. Of, it's a coming of age LGBT film um, that was so controversial that in uh, Nairobi, they actually had to or excuse me, in Nairobi, the film was banned because of its LGBT content. And it took a court hearing to lift the ban temporarily just so the film could be screened long enough, screened long enough to actually um, qualify for entry into the uh, the Academy Awards. Max, tell me your initial thoughts about Rafiki. I, I think it's interesting on a, on a few different levels. <laughs> well, one thing, uh, and I, I think we should note, this is a relatively new director, uh, Wanuri Kahiu, I, I, I believe is how we pronounce her name. Um, she's done, I think, some shorts and one other feature, which I haven't seen. Uh, but what, uh, what I like about this film is um, that it's, uh, yeah, it, it is an LGBT film, and but it's not it's not a dirge, which um, you might see in some some coming of age, age films where uh, like they're really trying to. Uh, I, I think what I'm trying to say is that like it's it's a love story that that really wants to make you feel the buoyance of of falling in love, um, and it's one thing I noted about it is that it has a very tactile sense of uh, touch where. Say, or, or not just touch, but a feeling where like, it, it's not just like when the two uh, two characters are, when the two lead actresses are close to each other, you can really feel it. But uh, the director makes a point of pointing the camera toward the sun in a way that it's not that it, it causes a lens flare, but it causes the sun to shine in a way that almost makes you feel the warmth on on your skin, uh, and like it becomes this thing where it, it becomes an analog to how how um, these two have have come to feel about each other and we should maybe give a little bit of background on, on the story about how um, it's about these two uh, I think te- they're both teenage girls and their fathers are actually political opponents where uh, the main girl her father it's uh, suggested he's the liberal politician and uh, her love interest her father is the conservative politician who is allied with an anti-gay church in the, in, in the, uh, in the city. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that is something interesting to note. And, and I think it's something that, um, is less interesting in the sense of how they refract those politics than, um, then almost the optics of, of these two women in, in the sense of, you know, this is partly a Western viewpoint coming in, but it, it is interesting that um, 
these two women, uh, Kenna and Ziki. Kenna is kind of a more, um, you know, she's more traditional as, as a tomboy in, yeah. in a, in a Western sense. And Ziki is, um, it seems a lot more, is not someone we usually associate with queerness. But unusually enough, the film has such a sense of, of, uh, of bright color. And yeah. her fashion sense is, is like very idiosyncratic and is something that in a film in America might actually be associated with uh, queerness. I, and, and so that's a, that's a weird thing that I'm potentially bringing into this, but it was nonetheless a, a visual, um, sorry, a, a visual dynamic that I think works in really interesting ways in the ways that there's kind of a push and pull between the expectations of how these women, um, play into, you know, like, a normal, like feminine, um, attributes and, and things like that. Like that was one thing that I was almost more taken up, uh, taken with than the actual, the actual romance. Um, I, it's, it's just such a, it's such a odd time. I, I, and you know, we've, I, I have to say, we've spoken about this on, uh, on the film stage show a little bit, you know, we're in such an odd time where LGBT films are, you know, the film community has existed for decades, but it's only now really starting to get mainstream acceptance. So we get this very interesting dichotomy where we're having films like, you know, not only Moonlight, but something like Love, Simon as well, uh, that these films that are coming from two very different modes of filmmaking um, but are still in the mainstream. And, and so Rafiki is kind of interesting because like, you know, when you look at festival slates, there, there is even usually an entire LGBT panel and, you know, not only are they usually pretty depressing, unfortunately, but, but they're also a little more arty. Like, like there is something I, I, Max, did you feel that this was... I thought this was pretty approachable. Yeah, it, well, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Moonlight and, and Love, Simon. And, like, Moonlight isn't a particularly um, uh, difficult film, but... Uh, sure. But I, I feel like this feels like a bit of an in-between uh, of those two, where it is... It, it feels like it was, it was made not just for... Um, it, it was made for audiences all over the world is, is, is what I get the sense. Like it's trying to let people into a world that they might, might not know very much about. And part of the fun of, uh, of it, like you mentioned that it's approachable. One of, one of the things that I really noted about it is the look of the film. This is the pinkest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> like it's, it's positively glowing. Um, and in, in a way that like, just, there's just kind of a, 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 infectiousness when it comes to just the spirit of the thing, even if the story itself is uh, fairly like, I don't want to say typical because that, that sounds like I'm dismissing it when, when I'm sure. really not, I, I like the film. Um, but it's a, it, it feels like it, uh, the director tried to make it not, not just to be, to be approachable, but also to try to make it uh, like, a story about how how fun it is to 
to fall in love uh, regardless of, of where where you fall on the uh, fall on you on the LGBT spectrum. Yeah, yeah, no, I th- I think that's that's totally on point, and and I think it's almost it's almost funny how long this film. You, you know, but like. I'm not saying this is predictable, but you knew this story would have to come to some kind of impasse. And when it finally does, it's it's almost a little bit of an afterthought. Like yeah. like it's a, <laughs> like it's a trajectory that they knew they would have to go to at a certain point. Yeah, that, um, that's where it does start to feel like it's hitting at least a couple of beats that it feels it has to. Um, and in a way that I, it, it's not that it's unsuccessful. It's just that it's probably the least interesting part of the film for me. So Ashes Purest White is the follow up, uh, by, uh, Zha Zhang Ke. I, I, I also may be completely, uh, fucking up this pronunciation. I, I apologize. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, set in China over the course of about, uh, I, I want to say 16 or 17 years where it starts in 2001. Yeah. Um, and follows a romance between uh, Zhao Tao and Liu Fan, and it, a course of events. The, the, uh, he's a gangster, and she is his girlfriend. And a through through a um, what what seems like a minor infraction, she is sent to jail for five years. He's sent to prison for one year, and it picks back up in 2006 when they've been separated and. She is trying to find him, and and um, he has moved on. And then it jumps again at one point to 2017, start of 2018, uh, when they are brought back together through other circumstances. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's a good a good way to like sum up the temporal context of this. But yeah, I, um, I to be honest, I, I was kind of. I'm kind of amazed by this film, even though I don't quite know what to make of the way uh, the, the turns it, it makes, particularly in the second and third act. But I, I think the most interesting way to talk about this is oddly what it's not <laughs> in the sense that, you know, we have seen we have seen gangster stories, you know, what? We have seen many gangster stories. We've seen even many Chinese gangster stories. We've seen far less from the perspective of people who are adjacent to that, but also empowered by it. I don't know. Feel free to take over if you'd like. But I think that there is something very poignant and urgent in how it becomes about the power and the powerless and how that switches. And at, at a, you know, a certain moment of time, someone can, you know, have all of the control and have everyone at their beck and call. And in a moment's instant, or I'm sorry, in a, yeah, in an instant that can change. And I think the ways that it portrays that are really unique and weirdly not like narrative as well. (laughs) Like it's very textured um, in what it has to say about that relationship. 
Yeah, and and we we should also note that uh, Ja he's been. Um, I've only seen in a few of his films. I really need to catch up with some of his earlier works. But he's a director who has um, often uh, used his films to chronicle how China has changed over the last several decades in particular. And this seems to be chronicling that much like Mountains May Depart and, and, and to some degree Touch of Sin did. But um, it's not foregrounding that necessarily. That becomes like a counterpoint to... Uh, how this relationship changes and how these characters, uh, like how, how their status changes, where he starts as a gangster and after leaving, when we see him again in 2006, uh, Leo Fan, he seems to have completely lost what power he had and seems to be a former shell of himself. And then when it jumps again in the future, he's really a former shell of himself. Like he, he's, um, I don't want to, I don't want to get too far into spoilers, but you see someone who seems to have lost total control of uh, his, his lot in life, uh, of, his, of his own destiny, whereas uh, Zhao Tao has to completely rebuild herself after prison to an even greater degree, but finds an odd way of doing it while still, like, it, it, while it, it also makes a point to show how um, her father uh, um, was part of I, I believe the mines and, and yeah. as China has, has changed over time like it seems like she was able to do very little for him as the country shifted from uh, socialism to at least a, a a country that incorporated capitalism yeah I, I, I yeah that's a that's a great point to bring up and I think that yeah the ways that this keeps zooming out to be able to show that you know that even what we assume is the the power structure in one individual place is you know a much smaller bond. <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, even in the case of um, uh, Leo Fan is the actor. Yes, that's right. Okay, uh, sorry, I, it, Leo Fan Fan's character is. I, I think it, even beyond talking about. The, the narrative here, which I'm obviously struggling with a little bit just because it's it, it's not easy to um, pare down to an, uh, to an easy trajectory. Like, like time is absolutely an attendant part of this and watching how things change. But I think the joy is also in watching uh, Zatao and um, Leo Fan work together because Leo Fan especially is, you know, his performance is, you know, there is a ruthlessness to it, but there's also a certain uncertainty and, and bitterness that like the world left him behind. And, um, I, that shows, in, in a lot of different ways. And I think Zhao Tao as well in, um, in, in, uh, showing her self-preservation streak. I, I mean, she is just, uh, really mesmerizing to watch and really brings like a sense of like almost split, like a split second presence. Yeah. Like I really felt like she was deciding something in the moment and to make that feel genuine um, is the skill you don't you don't see a lot. 
she's a she's a remarkable actress, and and she's someone who um, she's worked with uh, Ja several times, and and I, I, I believe they're they're also married, um, and they really bring out the the best in each other. Like she's she knows how he he employs a lot of very unshowy but long takes that mostly follow where she is in the space, like around this, like in relation to, um, Laufan. And there are so many great moments that just show her, uh, very, very slightly changing her expression. Like she's keeping the same smile and like the same general demeanor, but there's just some slight shift, not even in her eyes, but like the way her, her, like how, how, how her facial muscles maybe have have slackened slightly or 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 tightened slightly. Like I, I'm thinking in particular of a scene where she's informed that um, someone she met years ago uh, is now dating uh, Leo Fan and and she's completely lost him. And you see her realize in that very moment that um, he didn't even have the decency to tell her that something has changed as she's been gone. And, and it's it's uh, it's a very moving moment and at the same time we, we should note that while this this can uh be a um it, 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 it's a frequently very sad film it's also very funny <laughs> it's really funny there's this great scene in which um while uh Jartau is on the down and out she has to find a way to make money because she has been um her money has been stolen and she tries to scam someone into giving her money by convincing them that she's the sister of someone they've been sleeping with and she had a and the sister had a miscarriage without even giving any any real deal details <laughs> and what's funny about it is that she doesn't really do very much other than just give them the information and then stare them down sure. without really revealing anything of what she's th thinking just kind of staring at them until they they proceed to to reach in into their like in their pockets and give as much money as they can so so like she doesn't just uh, embarrass them in front of in front of a family gathering it, it's it's a very funny scene yeah yeah not only yeah there's there's a definitely a dark humor that that even is threaded throughout this and even a you know a, a certain a certain uh, almost, um, you know, bitter social realism to, to some of these scenes. Like I can even think of, you know, the one scene, you know, kind of action scene of, of this movie is shot in such a, a matter of fact, horrifying way. Yeah. And I think that's a, a huge credit to, um, uh, Zanki and his uh, DP Eric Gautier, like uh, there's just a sense of uh, it's just a, a detachment that nonetheless feels almost like adjacent to spectacle. Like it, it's not a spoiler to say that one of the first scenes, uh, I, as you were just speaking about how the camera stays fixated on uh, Zhao Tao in these scenes is one of the first scenes is just following her while there's like a magic show that's happening literally right next to her. And and the camera never gets distracted by that. And I think that that sense of, of focus and, and patience with these characters like really pays out 
dividends in kind of in incredible ways by the end. So I, yeah, I really, I've been trying to track down some of his other films like uh, platform. I've heard a lot about, uh, amongst others, but, um, especially after this, I'm just feeling even more urgency to do so. So I, I found a, a, a transition. I was looking at Eric oh, Gautier, sure. the, the cinematographer for this uh, film. Eric Gautier, he has worked frequently with Olivier Asayas, who we also both saw a film right. uh, of. Uh, not, though he did not shoot nonfiction, uh, sure. the, the Asayas film that we, we both saw under um, circumstances that could have been better. <laughs> Sure. Uh, would you like to talk about those circumstances? Oh no, or it, like, it's just a, it? a number. Of, a number of critics were sent to the wrong um, screening room and uh, were not informed until about five minutes into the movies. And we, sure. uh, I'd say, actually, most most of the people uh, who who were sent to were sent to the wrong screening room. So we all. all Caveats: We we miss the first four or five minutes of nonfiction. Um, maybe that cracks the whole movie wide open. I, I we have also should note that uh, I do find it interesting that it's called nonfiction in the U.S., but it's called uh, Double Lives. Yeah, it just seems like everywhere everywhere else in the world's potentially. Yeah, it's the, um, that's the French title. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, I, we had actually talked previous to this podcast that you're actually a a big. Um, a Sayas fan. So can, can you tell me a little bit of, just tell me a little bit about your experience with him and then some, um, initial thoughts about, uh, nonfiction. So he, he's a director who, um, he likes to mix it up a lot. He's, he's done a, like, a, a terrorist epic with Carlos. He's done, uh, several fil other films about radicalism, like, uh, Something in the Air and Cold Water, but he's also, uh, done smaller, more intimate films, uh, like, uh, Summer Hours and, and, uh, nonfiction, I think is, is more in that vein. And he's someone who, his films are frequently self-referential or referential, uh, toward other, um, other major filmmakers or French artists in, in a very metatextual way, I guess would be a way of putting it. And, uh, this film, I think, I, I think it has a lot in common with um, both summer hours in that it shows a world that is potentially moving on from uh, uh, a, a past way of, of living, and, and it also, I guess, it has that in common with Clouds of Cis Maria, which also stars Juliette Binoche. Both of these films have Juliette Binoche, and um, and so does uh, Summer Hours. Come to think of it. Uh, and this one specifically deals with the publishing world and how, um, different people in that world are adjusting to say the, sh the shift to eBooks and the shift to more, uh, commercial kinds of literature and say how one, one, uh, the, one of the main characters, um, uh, Guillaume Canet is, uh, married to Juliette Binoche and, uh, she is an actress and she's also dealing with how the, uh, film and television world is, is shifting, how she has become involved in a cop show that she thinks is, she 
seems to think he's not a cop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. She's she, a crisis she's management a, expert. Yes, that, that's one of the better recurring jokes in the film, and that she keeps reminding everyone that I'm not playing a cop, I'm playing a, a crisis management expert, or whatever it is. Um, but I, I say this with, with the caveat that while I don't think either of us dislike this film, it's not our favorite Asayas by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I I think especially with a couple days, I think it's um, yeah, you know, Clouds was certainly a a, a dense film. You, you know, there was a lot of uh, alliteration. Yeah, that's what I'm alliteration. Is that the word I'm looking for? No, it's not. Illusions, uh, maybe. Yes, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Max. Um, you know, that was a film that was dense. It was, you know, it it was uh. uh very much playing on another piece of uh, text and, you know, trying to deconstruct it. And there isn't that level of focus here. You know, you have, um, you have these four characters who are, are a part of different parts of the, you know, uh, literary world and culture that we consume. And, you know, sometimes it's, it, it uh, finds a, a kernel of something interesting to say about the, you know, uh, the ways that, you know, uh, things change about art in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of to give a certain sense of what kind of conversations you can expect in here. It's a lot of back and forth about how, you know, whether ebooks devalue uh, the publishing industry or whether, um, or whether a book that collects a series of tweets is something that is equivalent to, you know, a great poet's work. So there's a lot of those kind of, um, you know, dialectical questions that it at least tries to grapple with. But I, yeah, like, like Max, I think that it more often than not feels, um, overcrowded and is kind of inconsistent in characterization to the point where at certain given points, characters feel, uh, change to suit uh, political. Um, yeah, sorry. I, uh, to cert, to suit like certain political purposes rather than as like actual human beings. Um, yeah. I, it, yeah. It's there's there's nonetheless some good stuff though, and I, I hesitate to say you know, that it's visually dull or anything like that, because there's still a sense of, I particularly like uh, when this movie feels very claustrophobic. There, there's a, there's a dinner party, for instance, where uh, you find out that at least a few of the people there have very different, different uh, political views than some of the other, um, some of the, uh, other party goers and that that is shot in like such a a furious like handheld handheld but also very rigid way and and i still think that a, a seas has a way of staging these conversations 
even when the conversations get dull, there's still a constant sense of, of tension and momentum that his camera work brings to these. That's, that's a little vague, but I, I guess I'm just trying to say that this isn't, this isn't necessarily, um, like, I don't, I don't think this is a static moment for the film no. at all, but it, it nonetheless feels too much like a, a variation and, uh, you know, rendering things too, too concrete instead of making them more allegorical. Yeah. Something I'm, I, I joked when we were walking out of the movie that I felt like he had adapted my Twitter feed and <laughs> I f- sort of still feel that like it, I think it's at its most interesting when it's illuminating specifically how these people are struggling with how others consume their work and and whether or not the way they put their work out is is still relevant. One's a writer, one's a publisher. There's another character, you mentioned the political thing, who's a... um, she, she's some sort of a... She works for a, a socialist politician and, and like, she... The, the, the political argument seems to at the dinner dinner party you mentioned is over whether the person that she is she works for whether he really believes in everything he's doing sure. or whether some of the things he's doing are just to uh, for, for for image purposes and I think it really is at, at its at its most interesting when specifically dealing on on like how these people are maybe uncomfortable with how their work is consumed. But um, there are other times where it feels too much like a track. Not necessarily that um, Asayas is taking a side, but like he wants to uh, game out that argument without necessarily giving people to to hold on to, or or at very least they seem to be secondary. Yeah, I, I, and, I think so. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Max. Please go ahead. Uh, no, I I, I, uh, I think I, I, I was trailing off. Um, it's like it, and, and all the actors I think are fine. Like if you put Juliette Binoche in a movie, she's going to usually uh, like find ways to animate it somewhat. But it, it also part of me feels like she was cast not just because Asayas has worked with her so many times and loves working with her, but to get in a joke that both of us found kind of clanged. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, s- specifically having to do with um, Juliette Binoche being an, a, a character in the world of, of the film, as well as uh, uh, an actress who's appearing in the film, but uh, she's not playing Juliette Binoche. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I, I, you know, I think we actually, I, I think we talked a little bit after this that um, we mutually didn't particularly like when they did that explicitly in, in Clouds of uh, Sils Maria, which, you know, kind of with the, with the fake X-Men movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I must admit to you, I just get I, I get a little tired of um, I, it's personal taste, but I I like a lot more when filmmakers 
um, you know, examine this idea between like pulp and literature. And I say both those in air quotes when it, it's coming through cinematically, you know, someone like I, I've talked a lot about my love for, for Hoven, um, and, and particularly like Al, um, like that's something I think at least, uh, tries to enact some of these ideas in a more, um, kinetic way. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's not necessarily a, a miss, but, um, it's, I, Neither I don't know. No, sure. It, it, and it just, it, it unfortunately, it feels a little bit stereotypically like a festival title. Like there is something a little bit, um, yeah. Naval gazy, but also being aware of that, but also still being naval gazy. Like it doesn't transcend it's, that just because it's aware. Yeah, it's well, it's at, we should probably mention that as these characters are arguing with each other about the value of, of ebooks and, and real books and so on and so forth, most of them are sleeping with each other. And <laughs> we both felt it was, um, at its most, irritating when dealing with uh, Guillaume Canet's character uh, and uh, he's sleeping with a younger woman who seems to be uh, who, who works at his, his publishing company and, and sure. seems to be all, all for the, the digitalization of the work. And there's a scene in particular where he talks about um, there's a quote near the end of the leopard, uh, more or less about the, the the world as it is ending, and and sure. he he says something along the lines of like it, we have more. It, it feels true now because we have more things to uh, to fear now. Something along those lines, and I think both of us just kind of sank in our seats a little bit. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, that was that was rough. I, I you know there was one one last thing I wanted to mention about it though. You know I I um. I, I've been thinking, obviously, a lot about in our, you know, very politically fraught time uh, about um, how many films try and fail to recognize the way that people with opposing views, um, how they interact with each other and how um, how to how to convey like a sense of bubbles. And I think that this movie does a better job than at least some others. Right, um, I would agree. Because it's more implicit than something that's actually discussed. Like, they're never like, oh, my friends believe this, but you believe this. But rather, just by the whole film, in a sense, being about those uh, differing ideals coming into contact with each other, it, it becomes... Um, oddly poignant at, as a cumulative experience. Uh, should we move on to uh, Transit? Yeah. yeah. Which you just finished uh, today. Yeah. I just finished it about uh, 15, tw- or, well, no, now an hour ago. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, so Transit's really interesting to me because um, – you know, it's it's Christian Petzold who previously kind of had a a smash on the um, festival circuit with uh, Phoenix, 
which uh, was a story um, that a lot of people were comparing to Vertigo. It's set in uh, Germany during World War II, and it was a a film that was a lot about, um, you know, doubles and uh, emulation and the ways that we want other people to stand in um, for what we want, even if we can't get that I'm, I'm being vague because that gets more spoilery but right, um right yeah and and you want you want people to who haven't seen phoenix to uh get that last scene uh with, with the lump in the throat quality oh my god yeah <laughs> that's that seems one of the most incredible last scenes in the last decade at least I, I agree, um, yeah but um, yeah, transit's interesting because I I heard a lot of people talking about it in context with a lot of immigration stories. Um, you know, it's been or I should say this wave of immigration stories, and you know we've had a couple things, a couple films that have been pretty successful about it. I, I really liked a, a documentary called Fire at Sea uh, from the, the last couple years, which was about the refugee crisis. Um, in relation to refugees who were being detained in an uh, island, or excuse me, on an island in uh, Italy, I, I believe, or in the Mediterranean, and then there was uh, Karasmaki's uh, film last year, The Other Side of Hope, which uh, seemed to get a lot of attention, um, at least in some circles. So, uh, transit, I think, it is really. I, it, it's very fascinating because it, it it's at once very um, elliptical and and narratively not necessarily obtuse, but at least at least complex to the point of feeling intentionally convoluted. And you know, Phoenix kind of worked in that similar way too. But I think what makes Transit work so well is uh, partly it's just very pervasive sense of melancholy, uh, which is partly through uh, lead uh, Franz Rakowski, who's who's really fantastic. And I, you know, his resemblance to uh, Joaquin Phoenix circa The Master is really hard not to think about. Um, But I think that uh, Petzold's direction of this film and how he is so focused and doesn't let the narrative curly cues like flummox him at all. Like he keeps this strangely enough, incredibly coherent, you know, to, you know, it, it has something like narratively, I, I, you know, I guess you could go to someone like Hitchcock or, or something like that, at least in terms of how many red herrings there are and how many seemingly dead ends that the film finds um, and, you know, intentionally walks down, I should say. Uh, and, but I, I think what it, what it also especially reminded me of and what made it such an emotional experience for me was uh, the, uh, Marriage of uh, Ava Brown by uh, Fassbender. Um, Mm. Just in the terms of this film, which is, you know, I I guess set in present time, but is set in a, a political landscape that 
is not that you know it feels dystopian but is also very imprecise like is very unclear other than the fact that it seems like immigrants are being rounded up yeah and um yeah but i i think what i was saying about uh marriage of Ava Braun is that um i i think that this film really gets at what happens when you're living in a time of constant grief and tear and how your perception of each moment is changed to where you just want to enjoy it. And, and, you know, if the possibility that that can be ripped away from you at any time, your entire, the entire way that you live your life, the way that you, um, you know, cultivate your sense of self is just, um, you're just totally lost and in a limbo. And I found that really, uh, surprisingly emotional. And I just thought it was really beautifully done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one thing quickly I want to note, um, it's mar- marriage of Maria Brown. You said Ava Brown, which who I oh, believe geez. was Hitler's, uh, 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 um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, which is uh, funny uh, that we should uh, mention because uh, the, the 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 immigrants are being rounded up in the film. It is yeah, it's set in the mo- modern day, but it's set, or at least it seems to be. But it um, it's very much during a, a fascist takeover of Europe that sure. seems to be drawing parallels both to the rise of the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, and also the. Um, uh, well, the wave of anti-refugee and anti-immigration um, uh, rhetoric and policies that are going up throughout uh, Europe, throughout America now, and 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 a, a number of other countries, and it's the it's funny that you mentioned Fassbender. I hadn't thought of it him during the the film, but he similarly uh, Petzl similarly seems to he's it, it feels very much like. It's to some degree an exercise, but it's also a very deeply felt melodrama, and he finds a way to mix the two without cheapening the exercise or muffling the the melodrama. Like it, it really does. I think the film really does hit hard, particularly um, when, as you see where it where it ends up. We, um, I, I really like the lead actor as well. What I his resemblance to Joaquin Phoenix, a number of people have noted, but. Um, Something that struck me is that Phoenix is very much a, um, especially in The Master, he's he's uh, an actor who is just this walking exposed nerve. Like, Two, Two Lovers is another movie that really brings that up. And this actor, he has a bit of that, but he's also someone where he doesn't necessarily let you know exactly what he's thinking or feeling in a given moment. Like he always seems to be holding something back in a way that allows other characters to project what they're thinking or what they, or, or, or what they feel he is, they, what, whoever they believe he is, which is interesting. Because he's very, he's someone who has escaped. Um, they're in Marseille and he becomes a surrogate father to a pair, to a uh, young boy who's uh, who is a uh, undocumented immigrant, he also um, is mistaken for an important writer who, uh, in a way, that gets him an instant visa uh, that would allow him to leave 
the country easily. But uh, the writer's wife, um, who is played by, I'm, I, I just had this up and now I'm blanking on it. Sorry. Um, Paula Beer. Paula Beer. Yes, thank you. Um, she has been. She left her husband, the writer, a number of months back, and for another man, and now feels guilty. And when she hears that his visa has been picked up, she starts looking for him. And the character, like, um, it, it's not quite clear whether he doesn't have the heart to tell her that her husband is dead, or whether he is somewhat opportunistically. Um, keeping that from her. Uh, but in, in either way, like it, it's very much a film that deals with characters who are trying to find the right role that will allow them to survive, which makes it a very good uh, follow-up to Phoenix in that way. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, I, I think you're, you're right on with that. Fran Sarkowski. I, I was, you know, partly taking the piss a little bit in terms of the uh, description with uh Joaquin Phoenix, but I, I think that you're right on in terms of that he seems to be a great collaborator uh, in this film, you know, not only with Marie's character, but especially with the way that uh, Melissa and Derice, who is the um, the young immigrants and his mother, like uh, that has another a, a, another layer of his um of his mere quality, especially when you consider that uh, the mother actually only speaks through sign language. So, so just the fact that things seem to be going through so many, um, excuse me, uh, that communication is brought through so many different filters, I think um, is just one of like many ways that, as you were saying, this is, this is a film that is, that, uh, that is able to, again, have that um, certain pulp and genre uh, tension, but also, uh, again, be a, a very heartfelt uh, melodrama. So, yeah, I, I don't want to I don't want to say much more about the story because I, I I really didn't see it coming, even when, yeah, yeah, uh, no, where it, Phoenix it really it- not maybe to the same degree as as Phoenix, but it it really hits you in the gut by the end. I think okay, so those are the the four films that we I can count. Yeah, those are the four films we both saw. Um, why don't you tell me about a, a few other things that you saw that that uh, you think are worthy of talking about? Okay, so my my favorite. Uh, thing that I saw other than the, the films we talked about was uh, Chiro Guerra and uh, Christina Gallego's um, Birds of Passage. Uh, Guerra is the director of um, Embrace of the Serpent. Uh, Gallego has, I, th- I believe, worked with him before, but not as a director. She co-directed this, and it's a drug war story set in Colombia, which sounds, yeah, we've seen that before, but it finds a, a new way of doing it because uh, the main character, Rafael, who's played by uh, Jose Acosta, is uh, part of an indigenous Wayu uh, family in, in Colombia, and it takes on the perspective of a, uh, of a deeply spiritual um Native family that has found their way into the drug trade and gives the film both a novel milieu and also 
a greater spiritual and cultural uh, context, and a I think a clear anti-capitalist context, much like Embrace of the Serpent had, a, I think, an anti-colonialist context. And um, it's it, it's just it, it's an interesting film in which the mother-in-law uh, he the, the main character he initially gets into the drug trade entirely to buy a dowry for. Um, for the the girl he wants to marry, and the mother-in-law becomes more involved in the drug trade to the point where she's frankly a more dominating character than than he is. Um, and it's very much about being torn between uh, a very insidious kind of modernization and uh, uh, traditionalism, and how they kind of pull at each other, and and it, it, it's. Just it, I, I'm really excited to see where where Gera go, and also Galego, if she continues to either co-direct or, or or direct on her own. They have this just intuitive sense of how to use sky and darkness lyrically, where it's not just for the gorgeous picture, but also to isolate characters or to show them not like, see, uh, seemingly in in a sense of not being sure of how to approach. He, uh, he also, they also handle characters being killed in an interesting way where usually you see the action rather than, uh, the, the person who's actually being killed, like a gun will go off and you'll hear them, uh, just fall, falling to the ground. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I really like this. Also, uh, there's a scumbag character in it whose, uh, actions for the drug war and he has similar facial features and expressions to my idiot alt-right cousin. So I just thought I'd throw that. <laughs> There's, uh, so I also, I tried to make a point of seeing a smaller, uh, a couple of smaller films. And the one standout was uh, Srebrenica, which is a Croatian film about, um, it, it's a documentary of, that that is looking at a play that is being brought up about the un- the, the, the relationship between uh, Croatian and Serbian people in Croatia, uh, it's about a generation born after a war between the countries dealing with uh, the history of how, say, the Croatian population took out uh, their aggression on Serbian people. The play deals with a young girl who was murdered by a, a, a group of uh, Croatian men, and the the, the film, it documents the actual play going on, but it rarely shows actual footage of people performing the play. Instead, you'll hear that and you'll see uh, maybe the director and, and writer of the play reacting to how it's being performed. And it also in, in, incorporates how the actors are reacting. Like There's one actor who admits that he used to have similar anti-Serb uh, biases and he comments how the the play is helping him work through that, but also how even if you leave that behind, it never quite that racism never quite leaves you. Uh, there's also a younger character who's about 12 or 13 years old who has just found out that she's of of uh, Serbian ethnicity and how she's dealing with um, the still rampant anti-Serb bullying in, in the country. So it's it's well worth a look. It, it's very interesting at uh, looking at how art can be used to process both personal and national trauma. I, I, we talked a little bit about this. Um, I, actually, after uh, a screening we both went to, I, you know, I, I asked whether it was comparable to something like Active Killing or a Look of Silence. Uh, but um, A little and, and bit. You, 
and you said that, but so I'm, I'm curious a little bit, how is this visually represented? I mean, is this something that is explicitly meta in terms of the filmmaking or is it mostly so, the subject matter? So it, it, it's this, the subject matter, but also it, he finds the director. Um, there's no way I'm going to pronounce this correctly, <laughs> even though I'm part Croatian. Um, it's <laughs> Nabocha Slipjecevic, I, I, I believe is. That's a valiant uh, attempt. <laughs> rough attempt at the name. Um, he frequently, instead of shooting the, uh, instead of shooting the the action of the play, he'll not just shoot reactions, but also uh, he looks at the empty spaces where the play is going to be performed, and it took me a while to really warm up to what I think he's doing formally, which is to. Rather than just show the action of the play, which would be like the the more straightforward thing to do, to give us a sense of um, uh, of the environment that this is going to be performed in, and how uh, how like he'll frequently show an empty stage or an empty audience, and and like how it's frequently lost on people. Like it also it very openly deals with the hard right wing uh, uh, people in the country who are protesting the play and keep coming at it with a sense of like, why are you making a play about one Serbian girl who got killed rather than the, however many Croatian girls who get killed over in Serbia. Like it, 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 and they end up incorporating that into the text of the play, which is really interesting. So um, I'm not sure I actually answered your question. I'm afraid. No, um, no, 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 I I totally got it. I'm definitely going to check out that one. Uh, it's only seventy minutes long, so yeah. If 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 it comes out around you, it's it's well worth a look. Um, yeah, no, I I okay. I do want to ask you about Watergate, but I'll, I'll go through a couple things I watched. Sure, because I know you spent four hours watching Watergate, so oh. I need to hear about that. <laughs> um, well, so first, I, I the first thing I saw it wasn't my um, favorite, but it was something smaller that I kind of took a chance on. I hadn't heard much about it. And it's uh it, it translates it translates to uh the dread, um and of course I don't have the actual name um up in Ar- it's a uh, documentary about an Argentinian village uh, called uh, El Dorado. Uh, yeah, so it, it is a it's a, it's about an Argentinian village in El Dorado, and it caught my, my attention because the uh, log line for the film um, on the website was, or excuse me, on the Chicago International Film Festival website, is about how uh, this is a village that does not believe in medicine and believes in uh, holistic methods, which can range from using things like frogs to uh, prayer to more healing, um, like more uh, things that we would associate potentially with alternative medicine. And so that is at least the first part of the doc. And then um, it introduces a a man who is in the village over who uh, heals a dreaded affliction called uh, Espanto. Which is kind of, um, which is only in women and is kind of a severe depression. Um, and 
he cures them with very untraditional methods that I don't want to spoil here, but the film kind of uh, takes over that direction. And I, I think formally and tonally, I, I think is where this film is pretty interesting because, you know, for the first um, maybe 20 to 25 minutes, it's comparable to, you know, kind of portraits of kind of oddball towns. Um, Errol Morris came to mind as well as, you know, even something uh, more recent like uh, Founders Keepers. Um, and there is a certain, there is a certain uh, awareness of the humor in hearing some of the, uh, the methods that they use to uh, treat people. But um, formally, there's a, a real, uh, a real sense of um, detachment, which is oddly a word I've used a lot today for the different films we've been talking about, and uh, a sense of d- detachment and a real, wonderfully voyeuristic sense of composition, especially in terms of I, I already spoke about this one person who can cure the dread. Uh, they just kind of follow him from far away for about 10 minutes before we ever talk to him. So it's, it's not like an, an amazing documentary or, or anything, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it's stuck with me in the about weeks since I've seen it. Um, and it's, um, it, it looks very nice. And, you know, I have to admit that I haven't seen a lot of films about, um, Argentina. So I, I would recommend that one. And that's called, uh, the dread. And, um, perhaps my, one of my favorite films is, um, actually the narrative debut of, uh, film critic Kent Jones, um, who some of our listeners might be familiar with. He's been, he's been doing this for, he's been a film critic for decades and, He's done a few other um, documentary films, probably most notably he did uh, Hitchcock Truffaut in uh, 2015. And uh, he did a, then he did a TV documentary about uh, Elia Kazan and um, yeah. And, and one other one that I, that is uh, failing me, but Diane is um, hard to explain because at first glance it, it feels like a, a character study of a uh, 70-year-old woman in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, that woman's played by Mary Kay Place, who you may know from um, things like The Big Chill, uh, amongst a number of roles in various ensemble pieces, as well as um, the television show um, Mary Hartman, uh, Mary Hartman. And... So it begins as an like an exceptionally observant character study uh, about this woman, uh, the eponymous Diane, um, who is constantly moving. Like she she constantly has an inventory of things she's doing. She's constantly seeing relatives and friends, and she's checking in on her son, who is a heroin addict. And I, she's volunteering. And so for a, a long time, it, it just seems like it wants to watch this work, this person in her, her loneliness and trying to understand what her day to day life looks like. And then 
it significantly complicates and starts becoming a lot more uh, formally complicated. It, it starts uh, messing with uh, our temporal understanding, like years start passing without really indicating it in any other way. The reality stretches into dreams. And as I'm describing this, it may sound like she's getting into drugs or something like this. Like this isn't necessarily, it's not that type of story, but it is nonetheless a, uh, a character study that has almost a, or has a real interest in almost the like cosmic passage of time. Uh, and it's just really lyrical by the end. And it, it definitely takes a little while to acclimate to the, um, the density of the dialogue and, um, Mary Kay Place is just, uh, she's such an unusual um, front presence that it, it admittedly took a little while for me to try to get a hold of some of the deadpan deliveries and, and stuff like this. But um, I, even still, I feel like I'm I'm underrating it or not quite getting at the uh, the strange um, intangibilities of this one, but uh, the ways that it plays with these ideas of ritual and um, re- religion being on the fringe of our lives and um, just the the movement of time, which never, ever stops. Uh, it's really, it's really moving. Um, and this is, this is a very weird comparison. I, I can make, um, there are parts of this that oddly enough feel like a ghost story. Um, but have none of that, uh, self-conscious spectacle or sense of strenuousness. So yeah, a ghost uh, story as in the, the Lowry film. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's a strange film with a really fantastic uh, set of performances. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm hoping to catch up with it in the next few days, so uh, we may be able to talk uh, about it in the next uh, the next episode a little more extensively. Yeah, I, I'm being very vague about it on purpose. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, Max, I know that you you had previously told me that you're a little bit of a. Um, I, I, fanatic was not the word you used, but an aficionado for Nixon era Watergate yeah, and yeah, I, I, that era. I, like, like a lot of people, I, I've read and, and seen all the presidents, man. I, I've also read <laughs> uh, the final days about Nixon's final days and seen the TV movie about it. I've read multiple Nixon biographies. I've, I've read. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I've d- dived into Watergate stuff pretty much whenever I can find it, including the recent Slate podcast, Slow Burn. So when I saw there was going to be a four-hour-long Watergate documentary playing, I like it was one of the first things I made sure to RSVP for. And mm-hmm. then the day before I saw it, I realized it was directed by Charles Ferguson of Inside Job and No End in Sight uh, uh, fame, to which my reaction was more or less the lines of, oh, no. Uh, I, I, I think you've seen Inside Job, right? Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. it takes the financial crisis and turns it into just a like high school professor is tired and doesn't want to teach history lesson. It's it's very sure, dull also and super self serious as well. <laughs> oh no, one hundred percent. And um, this is more of the same, but four hours. Oh my. <laughs> 
it's uh, so in my view, it's close to impossible to take the Watergate story and just the sheer amount of malfeasance in it. The uh, the the number of just odd characters that popped up o- over the course of it and make it totally not compelling. But Ferguson, he spends most of his time documenting the what's of the thing. Uh, you know, what happened and, and what happened then? Like, how did the thing play out? Like, it, pretty much all of the footage that, that you could possibly find that played on TV at the time. And he doesn't really, like, he touches on the whys, but he kind of, like, does that to get out of the ways back to what happened and then what happened. Like, it becomes this perspective-free wiki doc, uh, wiki doc that I feel is mostly undistinctive beyond just being four hours long and being released in close proc, uh, released during the presidency of another, um, not very well liked president, uh, <laughs> who mercifully is never like his name is never mentioned in the thing, oh, but it God. still feels like, like the, the, the films, the, well, however, the, the film's subtitle is, or how we learn to stop an out of control president. So like in, it's presented like a how to guide, which uh, one, one of my problems with it is that while it does dive into say Nixon's dirty tricks against various different political rivals, like say Edmund Muskie, the uh, main Senator who was seen as his chief rival in when he was seeking reelection and, uh, George McGovern, the uh, further left senator who ended up being his opponent. Um, it doesn't really get into ideology very much beyond Nixon feeling like he his Nixon feeling that his his winning reelection was essential for the national security for of, of the country in some strange way, which is very much how he felt. But I, I feel like. Rather than getting into the social divisions that might give this film a reason for being, it mostly just gets into what happened, which we all basically know. And it might be a little more bearable, if not for the fact that there are several reenactments in the film, like several reenactments of Nixon and his cabinet and and his advisors meeting in in the Oval Office, and they're just got awful. They're just really bad. And uh, Ferguson has said that he did it because the audio quality on the tapes uh, is poor. Plenty of other people have used the tapes for other purposes effectively enough in other documentaries, other films. So, and, and when he does use the, the, the tapes, like, it works well enough. So that seems like, a, it feels like he, wasn't confident that he could use the tapes and make it visual. So instead he used the uh, reenactments, which they don't look good. They, they're, I, I think this was actually produced with the help of the history channel. So calling them history channel level reenactments, like is a bit of an obvious uh, jab at it, but like they, they really do look like total shit and the acting is bad. The guy playing Nixon has this awful perma scowl that is, feels like he's trying to play at Nixon rather than inhabit a character. Like, he looks, he doesn't look that much like Nixon, but he looks closer to Nixon than, say, Anthony Hopkins did in Oliver Stone's Nixon. But <laughs> that was a real performance, whereas this is is a, just a, a cartoonish impression 
that feels like it feels like the work of like, I, I, I don't want to blame the actor. I feel like the, he, he's working with a director who probably doesn't work with actors much because he's a documentarian. And on top of that, their whole purpose is to be expository, which speaks volumes of the film. Like you're not if you know the Watergate story, you might learn a little bit that you didn't already know if like you didn't know some of the particulars about it. But it's still stuff that you can find elsewhere and some of the talking heads that are brought in are really baffling. Like, I don't know why John McCain is in this for exactly two scenes that total about one minute. It's like at one point it's because it's to talk about how Spiro Agnew like had to resign for totally unrelated corruption charges and how, you know, uh, they didn't have the, I, that. This is the worst McCain impression ever. I'm going to abandon <laughs> it right away. Um, but it's it's about how like they didn't have his bust in 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 the Capitol for the longest time. Which who cares? And the other thing they bring him in for is how politicians are good at convincing themselves that they're more popular than they are. And this is when Nixon was still hanging on like by his nails. And it's it feels like. It's there to have a familiar face, and there are a number of these that are there to have a familiar face. And and really, the only like question that would have been interesting for McCain would have been, did you support him at the time, and how long did you support him? Because I, I believe in, I don't think it was Nixon land. I want to say it was Rick Perlstein's The Invisible Bridge, about uh, which is about Nixon's fall and Reagan becoming the next um, ma- uh, major figure in the GOP. It gets into how. McCain did say something along the lines of how this would be a small part of Nixon's legacy, but like that would be an interesting question for John McCain, not whether Spiro Agnew's bust is in the Capitol or not. <laughs> and, yeah, I from what yeah. you're saying, it, it I, I mean, do you think? I, I don't know. From what you're saying, it, it even sounds like his intra- like his interests seems minimal, other than repeating, you know. The uh, the stories that or, I'm sorry, the narrative that has been presented elsewhere. I mean, do do you ever see a glimpse of what maybe even he saw in this story that no. he wanted to illuminate? No, not really. It, it's mostly just the everything that happened, more or less, and with with, with like sometimes he'll his, sometimes his narration is just expository. Sometimes it's to give you a, at least a little bit of an idea of, of where he stands as if we had any, um, as if we didn't have an, uh, some idea already. <laughs> like, I guess one of the more interesting things he does do is, uh, he brings, uh, Pat Buchanan, the, uh, paleo conservative and, and gigantic racist who was a major, uh, Nixon advisor, um, and who was like, who stuck by Nixon, but I don't think had, that much to do with the actual dirty tricks. Like, I think he was just an, an advisor and a speechwriter, if, if I recall. And it gets into, like, what he was feeling and, like, how, at what point he realized that, like, the, the presidency was in real trouble. And he does correct Robertson at one point, not, like, in the interview, but, like, Robertson will give a self-serving version of what Nixon was trying to accomplish and what uh, his advisors thought what when uh, and then, like, he'll go to, yeah, he left out this part. But um, for the most part, it's just it's just pure exposition. Um, and it's 
Um, I, I guess it's interesting to get the perspective of some of the people who reported on it, like Leslie Stahl and Dan Rather, and obviously Woodward and Bernstein are there, but it's not sure. as if you can't get this from other, other sources. Like, Slow Burn, just this last year, uh, gave more perspective as to say how slowly the public turns on, on, on a president, um, to, to give just one, one facet that that gets into, whereas this really is just a, a, a very long primer with bad reenactments. Yeah. It's, uh, that sounds pretty dire. <laughs> it, I, you it's, know, it's like, I'm enough of a Watergate person that I wasn't totally bored the whole time, but, um, I, I, I can't say I'd, I'd, Say anyone who I, I, there are so many other Watergate related things that I would recommend before recommending this, and and I would really not recommend this. Yeah, I, you know it is it is interesting nonetheless. I, I mean, if we're really going to bring in, you know, it's good that they never use the you know the T word in this documentary, but you know it it is interesting nonetheless that. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get to it because I've heard very, very uh, frustrating things about it. But there is American Dharma playing as well, which uh, oh. talks to you. Uh, Bannon, uh, which is. Yeah. Uh, yeah so it, I don't know. It, it is. I, I'm not um, I'm not criticizing, obviously, for putting this in the slate or anything. But I do find the inclusion of these two odd. <laughs> I, I understand why I understand why they might want to get it. I mean, they're both Ferguson, whatever you think of him, like he is someone who has done a few things that at least people remember. And Morris is a major filmmaker. Sure. But I, I guess my 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 bigger qualm about American Dharma is, is like at least with the fog of war, you had someone who could be a little more reflective in McNamara, not not saying that he is a scumbag. He is. Um, sure. Whereas with unknown known uh, the the um, uh, Rumsfeld thing, it's from someone who I think is, is very purposefully not that, and this is from someone who is only slightly removed from the administration and and still has a a hard right agenda. So I'm really not sure what he thinks he's going to get out of this one, like beyond sure. whether or not you give. Bannon a platform like I'm I'm a, a bit agnostic on that on, on that particular uh, question like I I just I'm sight unseen I I'm not sure what he would hope to accomplish I, I should probably give it a shot first but I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get to it either this time around yeah and I I didn't want to make a hardline thing but I thought it was nonetheless uh, yeah. something that could be mentioned too and you know you you made it to at least a couple more than I did. Um, did you did you want to talk any more about anything else you saw? Uh, I, I'll briefly mention one and then get a little more into another. Um, I saw sure. Alice, Alice T, which is the new film from uh, Radu Montin. He's most best known for um, sorry, uh, Tuesday After Christmas, uh, which was out in 2010. Um, this Alice T is about a teenager who is uh, kind of a problem child and how uh, she gets pregnant at 16 and how it brings her closer to her mother, but it, it's not a particularly sentimental film. I still don't think he really found a interesting take on this particular kind of story. Like the, the, the only thing that I can really say is that it's more formally engaged than the typical teen pregnancy story. And the lead actress who is a first time uh, actor from what I recall, Andra Guti is very, very good in the lead, playing a kid who, like, 
there's really no way to, to like play this down. She's a total asshole of a kid and she manages <laughs> to make, uh, the, the character sort of infectious when she isn't being infuriating. But aside from that performance, I don't think it's, it's a bit of a letdown after Tuesday after Christmas. Yeah. I think she actually won, uh, Andra Guti actually won uh, best actress at, uh, Locarno. I believe you're right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. the other thing I saw was one that you actively avoided. It was uh, Nicholas Pache's piercing. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on on that one for sure. So I, I liked um, his first film, Eyes of My Mother, more than you did. Uh, you said you uh, really, really despised it from the sound of it. Um, and this, I, I suppose what I had, something I said about Eyes of My Mother when it came out is that I think this movie is sort of full of shit, but it got under my skin. And okay. I sort of had a reaction to this, but maybe to a lesser degree on the full of shit thing, where like I've come to admire how he manages to get shocks not out of out, out of uh, the typical jump scares, but out of very precise framing and editing. And, and in this case, he does it for shock comedy. The film is about a... Uh, Someone who decides that he has homicidal impulses and he's going to, rather than take it out on a family, he's going to take it out on a prostitute. Uh, the, the actors played by Christopher Abbott of um, James White and Girls fame. Uh, the the uh, woman he hires is played by Mia Zbosikowska, and you find that she has her own kind of uncontrollable impulses. And I understand the novel uh, by uh, Ryu Murakami dives into the reasoning behind and it a little more. Like, I, I think you get a sense of what happened with him. You don't really with her, but uh, you can kind of intuit that they're both finding violent ways to deal with impulses that they have that they can't control, but they seem to enjoy that have arisen from trauma in an odd way. And Pesce just finds a way to get a lot of uncomfortable laughs out of it. I'm not yet convinced that he really has a lot to say, um, is, is the thing, mm. but I'm, I'm kind of enjoying his work just formally. Yeah. I, I, I have heard, I, this seems like it's kind of gotten mixed notices out of yeah. a few different, um, I did playing a few different festivals and things along those lines. I, it, it was interesting to me that I did see kind of a, a kind of a, a pattern of people talking about uh, an erotic edge to this, like a certain uh, kinkiness that is a big part of this film. Is is that fair to say, or is that getting into spoilers it, or anything? It, it, it is, but um, it's in a very, um, in a way that seems designed to turn off most people. <laughs> Um, it, it, I mean, but the, the, at least one of the characters is a, is a sociopath, and the other seems to have something. Also, has violent impulses that go well beyond S and M. So, uh, it, 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 it's, I, I, it, I guess you could say that, but it's, it's a very strange kind of kink. Okay. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. I, I must admit that. If this is more of a a dark comedy, I think I might be more into it. I, I think I just found. Uh, eyes of my mother to be such a such a, a self conscious slog in terms of that you know precision. I, I I found that precision you know you know that it seemed like the 
the kind of like ultimate example of elevated horror to me, <laughs> in, a, in a way that really frustrated me. Um, hey, yeah, I, 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 I understand what you mean. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, sorry. I, just a year before that conversation, you know, fully destroyed all criticism. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like. As I, I understand what some of the criticisms that are coming up, but I, I also kind of sigh when I hear that term. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, what you know, I, I you might I, I think you might enjoy this a little more just because it is darkly comic, and and both performers are are very good. Um, Chris Abbott plays a sociopath as kind of an incompetent sad sack, um, like someone who is very diligently going about what he's going to do and uh, finding he's not actually very good at it. Um, like the very early going uh, reminded me of a even darker version of uh, Preston Sturge's unfaithful yours. It's nowhere near as good, but it, it, um, it reminded me just, I, I, I guess just in the outline thing. Okay. And Vasikovska has a way of reading her lines and, and giving a slight smile in a way that's both darkly comic and deeply unnerving. So uh, I think at least on that level, if you found Eyes of My Mother too self-serious, you might get a little more out of this. Okay. Yeah. No, I even, yeah, Waskowski, uh, Waskowska is, is one that, you know, like her, her role in like uh, Stoker, for instance, is yes. something that's so fascinating, even as I think that film's like very flawed, like her performance is is enough of its has its enough of its own like strange orbit <laughs> that it you know uh pushes me forward yeah this this one does sound more interesting um okay well i guess this is i, I think this is probably at the end of our um first set i, I think we're probably going to do a, a a second podcast um later this week uh i'm still not quite sure about um, what we're going to talk about. I know that I've, I've got a, a few things on the docket, but uh, some of the bigger films are selling out, which, you know, that's that's good. It's always good to know people are seeing movies. So I'm not sure quite what you can expect with the second half of our uh, recap of the Chicago International Film Festival. But um, uh, Max, to take us out, why don't you tell us where or tell the uh, audience where you can be found. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Max B. O'Connell. You can uh, find my writing at various different places, uh, but uh, again, most recently at RogerReaper.com and at uh, the uh, the film stage. Fantastic. And I am Michael Snydow. Uh, you can find my writing these days. It's slightly been at the film stage. I'll actually have an interview with the director of uh one of the films I talked about on this uh, episode, Diane, um, soon. And um, you, I, I hope that you uh, tune in for the next episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Where you can see all the stars as you walk down.